Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. If you're joining us online, good to have you with us as well. Welcome. Glad that we're together this morning one way or another. Uh, before I begin this morning, I want to thank a couple people, and then I want to explain my sermon. First, I want to thank Robbie, Robbie John, for the sermon that he preached last Sunday, reminding us that worship isn't something that just happens for an hour on a Sunday morning, but that we worship God with our lives, and when we come together, we should be expecting God to do something. So if you didn't catch that sermon last week, go back online, uh, access it, you will be blessed by that sermon. So thank you, Robbie. I would also like to thank my church family. Uh, it's been mentioned several times. Uh, I lost my father two weeks ago. I actually didn't lose him. We know exactly where he is. But in the past week and a half, myself, my wife, my siblings, our entire family, we have been buried with cards and calls and texts and prayers so much love, and thank you so much to my Bay Area family. And it really makes me appreciate what Jesus said at the end of Mark chapter 3 when uh, he's teaching some people and uh, his mother and brothers show up looking for him. And somebody says, hey, your mother and brother are out here. And Jesus says, these are my family. This is my mother and my brothers and my sister, people doing the will of God. It reminded me so vividly, this is my family people doing the will of God, and people who love other people because they've been loved by God, people who love other people with the love of Jesus are able to feel and to show love like nobody else in the world. And I'll go ahead and say this as well. If you are not a part of a church family, if you're watching online, you're like, well, I'm not really hooked into a church community. Or maybe you're here with us and like, I'm not really tied into you know, my church family. I'm telling you, you are missing one of the greatest blessings that we have this side of heaven. Just the, uh, the joy and the comfort that, that our church community brings, our family. These are the people who are going to be there when your life gets weird and when life gets hard. These are the people who are going to show up at the hospital. And these are the people who are going to sit with you and pray with you. These are the people who are going to celebrate with you and cry with you. These are the people who are going to show up at your door one day with a box full of food, Faye Brown. These are the people who are going to take your elderly father out to lunch every week just because they know how lonely he is. Jenny DeBose and... B.J. Lickman. These are the people who are going to think to do things that no one else would ever think to do just to show kindness and love. Bert and Jeannie Thomas and so many other people, so many of you. So thank you to my church family. I could not imagine doing life without being part of this family. Having said that, I'm going to ask for a little bit of grace from my church family this morning said I wanted to explain my sermon. Today's sermon is actually a rerun, and I've never done that before, but I'm doing it today, and I'll tell you why. Many times, dozens of times, my father told me, told my wife, told all of us, at my funeral, 
I want the gospel preached. And he would tell me, Tim, I want you to preach my funeral, and when you do, I want you to preach the gospel. I don't want anybody telling stories. I don't want any pictures. I want you to preach the gospel. And I always said, what makes you think I want to preach your funeral? <laughs> or what makes you think anybody wants to tell stories? Oh, that's true, that's true. Maybe not, but whoever does it, I want them to preach the gospel. And then a couple years ago, I preached a sermon. And my dad said, that's the sermon I want preached at my funeral. Preach that sermon. Well, thanks to COVID-19, there will be no service, no funeral, no memorial for my father. But in honor of his love for the Lord, I am asking for some grace because I'm choosing to re-preach that sermon. Um, you know, it's, it, I think it, it falls perfectly, in fact, perfectly, in our series, Who Is This Man? Getting a little bit ahead of ourselves with it, actually. But it also falls perfectly into Mission Sunday. Dad had such a passion for foreign missions. I lost track of how many missions he went on, mostly to India. But uh, he told everybody he knew about Jesus. And uh, I'll say this as well. This, this really sermon, this isn't about my dad. It's, it's about my father. And I want to talk to you this morning actually about another preacher who preached another sermon. In fact, a preacher who preached what I think is the greatest sermon of all time. And I'm talking about the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. I think it's the greatest sermon ever preached. And you're saying, wait a minute, what about uh, Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount? Well, see, as a preacher, I don't really see that as a, as a classic sermon because Jesus didn't have three points and he didn't offer an invitation. But in Acts chapter 2, Peter has three points and he offers an invitation. So I'm counting that as the greatest sermon ever preached. And you know, we get hung up on the greatest ever, don't we? We get hung up on the greatest of all time. Who's the goat? You know, what's the greatest of all time? You know, this, that, you know, what person? Now, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Was it Michael Jordan or LeBron James? And, you know, we argue about that. Who's the greatest football player of all time? Was it Jim Brown or Jerry Rice or Tom Brady? This week in Tampa, Florida, I'm leaning towards Tom Brady. I'm hoping at least. But I, I googled the greatest sermon of all time, and there is no consensus at all. There's no consensus as what was the greatest sermon of all time. But I'm going to argue, Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter. In the second chapter of Acts, Peter stands up along with the other apostles and a very crowded city of Jerusalem preaches what we call the very first gospel sermon. I learned that when I was eight years old. I've come since to realize Acts chapter 2 is a monster chapter. It has implications through the rest of the New Testament. The things that Peter stands up, the things that he says in that first gospel sermon, they were direct, they were convicting, they were life-altering. They were 2,000 years ago, they still are today. And what Luke records of Peter's sermon, it's only 20 verses. The greatest sermon of all time only takes up 20 verses, which probably a lesson for all of us preachers everywhere but there is so much in those 20 verses. And we're not going to pretend to get through it this morning, but I do want to share with you what I think was Peter's focus. 
what he really wanted all of those people gathered there in Jerusalem to hear and what he really wanted them to know. You know, there was a time when if you would have asked me, what's Acts chapter 2 about? I would have said baptism. But that's not really true. Now, Peter does talk about repentance and baptism in no uncertain terms, and I will too, but that's really more of his invitation. That wasn't the message of his sermon. And Peter, although, you know, he's a fisherman, kind of a rough blue-collar guy, he was a great speaker, a great communicator. And people for the last 2,000 years have been copying his style. Uh, He preached with passion, direct. You know that I copy his style. I'm a guy who loves three points. Three points in a poem, man, what else do we need, right? Maybe that's because that's about all I can keep track of. But Peter shares three points. I think if he was using PowerPoint, I think he'd have three slides. But again... He delivers it with such conviction and such a sense of urgency. And the message that he shares changed lives. It changed mine. And I bet it changed yours. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Peter stands up and says, listen carefully to what I say. Another version says, make no mistake about this. Peter says, I'm about to tell you something that you really need to hear and that you really need to understand. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. And then Peter makes his first point. Jesus. It's Peter's first point, the greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus. He quotes the prophet Joel, and then he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Peter begins by saying, Jesus of Nazareth, you remember him. You know who I'm talking about. And when Peter mentioned the name Jesus, they would have remembered Jesus. They knew exactly who he was talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we remember Jesus. Sure, the carpenter's son, right? Yeah, we remember Jesus. We remember what he looked like. I remember what he sounded like. He was the one who went around and did such great teaching in the temples, in the synagogue. He was the one who, uh, you know, uh, walked around Galilee doing miracles, wonders, and signs. Sure, we remember who Jesus is. And as Peter's preaching this sermon, there's probably somebody in the crowd that kind of nudges their guy beside their neighbor and says, you know what, my uncle was in that huge crowd that day that he took the kids' lunch and fed all of them. Yeah, my uncle told me about that. Maybe there's somebody nudging the guy beside him and said, you know, my neighbor has a friend who had a cousin who was blind. This guy, Jesus, he gave him his sight back. Oh, we remember Jesus did a lot of good. Made a lot of people angry as well. You know Jesus. And then Peter immediately makes his second point, which builds right off his first. Christ. Peter, referring to the prophet David in verse 31, says, Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. 
This Jesus that we all remember, he wasn't just a carpenter. He was the one. He was the Messiah. He was, he is the Christ. You all, you have been longing for the Christ for generations. We have been waiting for him to show up. We have been praying about the coming of the Christ. He was here. It was Jesus. You saw him. You shook his hand. You listened to him. You ate with him. The Messiah, the Christ, he was here. There's a tomb on the other side of town that's empty because just like David prophesied, death has no power over the Christ. And then Peter doesn't waste any time before he makes his third and final point. Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is Peter's message. That is his three-point sermon that he preaches. Jesus Christ is Lord. Just a few days ago when he was captured, you all thought you were in charge, right? You stood before Pilate and shouted, crucify him, crucify him. You thought you were calling the shots, right? When he was hung on a cross, you thought you were in control. Let me be sure you understand who was in control that Friday. Jesus Christ is Lord. He was in total control. You didn't outsmart him. You didn't overpower him. He was dictating what was happening that day. He was in control. He offered his life. What you didn't realize, that poor despised carpenter's son that you put on a cross, Jesus, he's the Christ, and he's Lord. And pretty much that's Peter's sermon. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the three-point outline that Peter uses in the very first gospel sermon. Jesus Christ is Lord. And the people that heard that sermon from Peter, they were pretty quick to understand what it meant. A large number of them picked up what Peter was was trying to get at. And they understood what it meant. My question is, what's it mean to you? What's it mean to us that Jesus Christ is Lord? Well, let me back up to, to Peter's first point. Jesus. Because he's Jesus... Someone does understand. You get that? You understand that? Because he's Jesus, someone does understand. He was here. John began his uh, gospel by saying the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Paul would write in Philippians 2 that he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Jesus was a real man. He was human. He worked. He sweated. He cried. He hurt. He knew how good the sun felt on his face. He knew how much it hurt to lose someone that he loved. He knew pain. He knew loneliness. He knew rejection. Whatever it is you're struggling with in your life right now, Jesus understood because he was Jesus. Because he was human. Don't ever forget his humanity. 
Don't ever forget that he, that he walked on this earth and he faced the same challenges, the same temptations, the same frustrations that we do. Don't ever forget his humanity because if you do, one day Satan's going to come along and try to convince you that whatever it is you're going through right now, no one else can understand. That whatever you're struggling with, no one gets it. No one's ever been there before. You're the only one that's ever dealt with this. That is Satan's lie. Because he is Jesus, someone does understand. But he wasn't just Jesus. He was also Christ. Don't forget his humanity, but don't forget his deity either. And because he is Christ, circumstances are never as hopeless as they might seem. And can you see how those two relate? Because he's Christ, circumstances are never as hopeless as they might seem. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus Christ. It wasn't a last name. It was a title. It was a description of not just what he was, but who he was. The tomb is empty. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We're on this side of Resurrection Sunday, not just this side of Crucifixion Friday. We know Jesus rose from the grave. We have the hope that that involves and that instills. Could you imagine going through life without that hope? Remember the story about the four elderly women who are living in a retirement home and they're playing bridge one day in the lobby and a very handsome elderly man walked into the lobby and he walked up to the front desk. The ladies immediately notice him. One of them turned to, turns to him and says, uh, excuse me, what's a nice looking guy like you doing in a place like this? He said, I'm actually checking in. I'm moving here. I'm going to be living here. The second lady said, oh, really? Where are you moving from? He said, prison. I spent the last 25 years in prison. The third woman said, really? What, what were you in prison for? He said, well, I was in prison. I was convicted of murdering my wife and burying her in the backyard. There was a huge awkward silence. Until the fourth woman looked at him and said, so you're single. <laughs> Hope is a wonderful thing, right? Hope. Don't tell me you already forgot that joke. Hope is a powerful thing. As Emily Dickinson, who wrote, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Because he is Christ, things are never as hopeless as they might seem. You need to know that. And you also need to know that because he is Lord, things are never out of control. Because he's Lord, things are never out of control. Let me ask you, who's in control right now? Hmm. Who's in control of your family? Who's in control of your marriage? Who's in control of, you know, what's going on in the world? I heard someone say it over here. Yeah, the Lord, right? 
But sometimes we wonder, I don't know who's in control. You know, things seem kind of out of control. Matthew chapter 28, just a breath before Jesus gives what we know as the Great Commission. He tells those men, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Acts chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, both describe Jesus as Lord of all. Peter makes it very clear in Acts chapter 2, somebody's in control because Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, when everything seems out of control, you need to remember Jesus Christ is Lord. When it seems like there's no light at the end of the tunnel, you need to remember Jesus Christ is Lord. When you're struggling with your family and you know, your spouse has hurt you and you're not wondering, if, you know, how am I going to get past this pain? Remember, Jesus Christ is Lord. When you're struggling with your kids and it seems like everything you do kind of makes things worse or you're struggling with your parents... And you just can't quite seem to see eye to eye. Remember, Jesus Christ is Lord. When your finances are out of whack and you're so stressed out about it because there's too much month and not enough paycheck, remember, Jesus Christ is Lord. When you've got nowhere else to turn and you wonder what in the world is going to happen, remember, Jesus Christ is Lord. He knows. He cares. He is in Total control. And that's Peter's sermon. The first gospel sermon. I told you it's the greatest ever. Pretty hard to improve on those three points. And Peter tells the crowd, Jesus Christ is Lord. And oh, by the way, you killed him. He throws that in as well. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You killed him. Jesus, the Christ, was here. Jesus, Christ, the Lord, was here. And you crucified him. Now, remember, Peter's talking to a large crowd of people. There's a lot of people listening to Peter when he said, you crucified him. Did all of those people swing the hammer that drove those nails? Did all of those people push the spear into Jesus' side? No, obviously not. But what Peter is saying, and what these people pick up on, they get it, it's because of your sin. Your sin is what makes you guilty of the death of Jesus. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.3, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. As people listening to Peter, they were guilty of crucifying Jesus because they were sinners. Just like me. And just like you. Paul understood that when he wrote the letter to the Corinthians. Peter understood that when he preached that first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2. And an awful lot of the people listening to Peter understood it as well because they are the scripture says, cut to the heart. They are absolutely convicted. And they ask Peter, they ask the others, what do we do? You're right. This carpenter, this guy Jesus, he's the Christ. He's Lord. And we did have a part in that, uh, that penalty, that, that crucifixion. What do we do? 
When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? My sin put Jesus on the cross. Is there anything I can do about it? Well, Peter's preached his sermon. Here comes the invitation. As a matter of fact, there is something you can do. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Peter says you need to do two things. You need to repent, and you need to be baptized. Every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ. Now we say, we're talking about repentance, repent. Well, that's, that's a church word, right? We don't really use that word very much in our day-to-day vocabulary. What does repent even mean? And we could and we should talk for weeks about repentance. The Bible says so much about repentance. For my time this morning, just let me say, it certainly involves godly sorrow, but it also involves a decision to align my life more in line with the will and the life of Jesus. To make my life look more like his life. It revolves around my decision to make Jesus, the Christ, my Lord. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So, I can make this right. No, (laughs) you can't make it right. There's nothing that you can do to make it right... That's not some kind of a works-based righteousness, but you can accept the free gift of grace that's offered at the cross. And part of the acceptance of that grace is repentance and baptism. Now, we call it a free gift, but I think we all know it wasn't free. It came at an incredibly high price. We just didn't pay it. Baptism doesn't negate the cross. Baptism confirms the cross. People will try to tell you, baptism is really nothing more than a symbol. Nowhere in Scripture, there is not one verse that hints that baptism is a symbol. It is a participation in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ the Lord. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And if we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who's died has been freed from sin. Romans chapter 6 is such a great, such a powerful chapter about our participation through baptism with Jesus. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We are saved by grace through faith. 
There is no other option. We are saved by grace through faith. Baptism is not an addition to faith. Baptism is an expression of our faith. It is a faith in the working of God, not not by works that no one can boast. Paul said that the thing that we contribute in baptism is the faith that God is going to do what God promised He will do. That God is going to forgive our sins. The Bible teaches that something happens at the point of baptism. Our sins are forgiven. And we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that was Peter's invitation to the greatest sermon ever preached. That was his invitation. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. The invitation hasn't changed. 2,000 years later, the invitation is exactly the same. It's the Lord's invitation. Listen, if you've never done that, if you've never considered that, maybe you're at home and like, okay, I've never really thought of it that way before. Maybe you're here and like, okay, I've, I've thought of it, but I've never, really, I've never really done it. I love Jesus. I love God. But I've never done what God's told me to do. I never did what 3,000 people did on that day. I never submitted to baptism. Repented. Listen, if you're in a place where you need to talk to somebody about that, I beg you to talk to somebody. Talk to one of us. Talk to me. Get in touch with us. There's a place on the, uh, that I'm sure Matt will have here soon enough, uh, a link that you can get in touch with somebody at the Bay Area Church of Christ or someone somewhere. I don't know where you live. I don't know where you live. I know where most of you live. But if you've never considered that, you need to prayerfully consider that today. Jesus Christ is Lord. And really the only question is, is Jesus Christ your Lord? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the greatest gift ever given. Your son coming to this earth, dying on a cross, the only sacrifice sufficient to do what you promised to do, forgive our sins, and in Christ, in him, find us holy and without fault in your eyes. Father, would you give us the faith and the courage and the urgency to not only believe, but also to proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Again, there's a link on screen if you're watching online. If you'd like to get in touch with someone to pray with you or pray for you about anything, we would love to be able to take advantage of that. Uh, If you're in the auditorium, uh, some of the elders will be available right after the close of our service down here at the front if you would like to speak to one of our shepherds about anything. Uh, Travis has a song that he is going to lead and get us ready to share in communion together.